Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning, and happy Mother's Day. Though it's Mother's Day, we're not going to be talking about parenting or anything like that. We just had a parenting series that was awesome that Chris preached, and and I'm going to be talking about something else that I think is absolutely critical, and that the Lord has for us at this time. So let's bow our heads for prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, I thank you so much for this time together with this church. Thank you for the way you've been growing us, not just numerically, but spiritually, and you've been changing our hearts, and I thank you for that. And uh, Lord, I just pray, I really believe that you've got something here for us that is a really key, critical next step for Southland. And, uh, and so I, I pray that we would really capture this thing, but not just in our heads, but in our hearts, and that in obedience we'd respond to you. And then I'll thank you in Jesus' name for what you're going to do. Amen. Many people's perception of the Christian life is you get born again, attend a church, treat people well, work a job, retire, die of some kind of sickness, and then you're off to heaven. That's it. How sad to trade a divinely designed destiny for such a mundane existence. In fact, Jesus paid too high a price for us to live that kind of an, an, an existence. No one is common in God's kingdom. We're created for a unique path that is phenomenal, or as I talk about in our uh, uh, marketplace leaders sell, our journey of strength. God desires and has planned for each believer to live an extraordinary life. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a school teacher, business person, government leader, stay-at-home mom, athlete, factory worker, hairstylist, student, pastor, employee. It, doesn't, it simply doesn't matter because you were created for incredible achievements in that role. In the role that God has called you, he's calling out incredible achievements, achievements, and an exceptional and extraordinary life. Too often the church has limited Satan's, uh, uh, Satan's chief strategy to certain behaviors like trying to get people to drink alcohol or watch dirty sex movies or something like that. That is one of his strategies. But he's way more crafty than that. What he fears most is Christians discovering who God has made them to be. That they're meant to be exceptional people with abilities to carry out remarkable feats. Stephen is an example that we find in the book of Acts in chapter 6. And uh, he was not an apostle, he was not a prophet, he was not an evangelist, he was not a pastor, and he was not a teacher. He was none of those things. He was an ordinary believer, just like you. Yet he accomplished some amazing works among the people. And he's a tremendous example to us of what God is calling out. For example, he performed miracles and signs just like Jesus did. In verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. And when opposition to, that, uh, to what he was doing arose, notice the second great work. He spoke with natural, supernatural wisdom just like Jesus. In verse 10 it says, But they, his enemies, could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Note, he didn't say, um, guys, I'm not a theologian or an apostle. You need to talk to one of my pastors about that. No. When they questioned him and when they brought him up for questioning, he relied on God's grace, his power and strength, and then he delivered the answer. In fact, it is a long answer from verse, uh, verse 2 to 53. Just a very lengthy exposition of Old Testament scriptures that uh, no theologian could have done any better with. He somehow had access to supernatural wisdom, just like Jesus. Third, he forgave his enemies, just like Jesus. When Stephen's enemies couldn't outwit him, they decided to kill him. After a rigged trial, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him to death. Listen to his amazing words of forgiveness as the uh, church's first martyr. He said, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And the very next words say, and then he died. And that was it. God is pleased with us when we accomplish great works. God is pleased with us. Now, this is what I want to say to you. God's love for us is unconditional. Unconditional. He loves everyone unconditionally. But this is what may surprise you. God's pleasure in us is conditional and depends on works. 
take a look what uh, the father said about his son from heaven. He called out. The heavenly father, that is. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What was he pleased with? Well, in John, Jesus said, I always do what pleases him. God's pleasure is based on our works. The works that he's prepared in advance for us to do, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And it's not the same for any of us. He's got a plan and a will and a set of works that he expects us to achieve, each individual independent of another. We're to do the same. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, whether we are at home or away, Paul said this, we aim, we make it our aim to please him, it says. So how do we please him? Well, Paul said in Colossians 1, he said, we ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, then you will be able to, uh, will be able to live as the Lord wants and will always, what? Do what pleases him. Your lives will produce all kinds of good deeds, he said. We please him through our works, which bear much fruit. So not only are we, uh, are, does the Father experience pleasure in us when we do good works, but when we do many great works. John 15, 8 said, This is to my Father's glory that you bear, what? Much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what exactly are these great works that please the Lord? Well, I, we get a hint if we start back with Jesus, and the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John wrote about Jesus in 1 John chapter uh, 3, verse 8. He said, the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason that Jesus appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to rescue us from the devil, and we know in John chapter 10, that thief comes only to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's right. We talk a lot about that at the encounter, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And, but Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, which were to steal, kill, and destroy. He came to break those and destroy those works. Now, would you say that the devil is... Uh, is, a, is, is quite a formidable adversary, yes or no? Yes, he's a formidable adversary, and so it's going to take great works to destroy his works, amen? And that's the point. Now he call, Jesus calls us and sends us to do the same. He said, I tell you the truth, Jesus was speaking here, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Are you kidding me? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and now he says, believers will do the same thing that he is doing. In fact, he says, he will do even greater things than these. That's what pleases the Heavenly Father so much. When we rescue and bring rescue others, work the, uh, destroy the works of the devil, rescue people from their, from their sin, and change the circumstances, change the systems, and bring abundant life in its place, and life to other people. In contrast to the reputation of many Christians and churches in the West today, one of the struggles that the early church had was convincing people they weren't super superheroes or gods. They were doing so many great works that the people that were observing them in society and their culture were so blown away, they said, these cannot be human beings because we certainly couldn't do what they're doing. So you may look like a human being, but you're not. You're a god. And they'd fall down and worship them. Because you're a superhero. And that's, that's the point. We get a portrait of what the Christian at that time looked like when he's performing great miracles, or great works, I should say, which included miracles, of course. Christians <clears throat> were held in such high esteem that it was said of them that everyone had a high regard for them. So what do we need to live such lives? Well, for great works that please the Heavenly Father, we need great grace. It says in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, <clears throat> excuse me, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, 
you may abound in every good work. So grace results in good works, if you can get grace for that. Now, grace is not just for salvation. Too many people in the, in the West think that, excuse me, that God's grace is simply f- to save people. It's not. His grace, his power, is to save people, but it's also needed to set people free, and we've talked lots about that over the last bunch of years, and seen many, many people set free in different areas, um, at the encounters and in personal ministry here, that kind of stuff. But grace is also needed to enable us to advance the kingdom by going beyond our own abilities to live extraordinarily before others. Jesus himself lived such an extraordinary life by supernatural grace. Listen to what uh, Luke wrote in Acts 10 about Jesus. He said, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and what? Power. And what? Power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. So there he was. Under the influence and the power of God's grace and the Holy Spirit, the power, he was destroying the works of the devil. That's what it says there. But in order to access this grace, so great works are required to please the Heavenly Father, for that we need great grace, which which is supernatural power to do that. But in order to access that, we need great faith. And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 5. I'll read it, and then I want to say uh, a couple of things. Romans 5 says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So you see, the access to grace is by what? Help me. By faith. Now, I believe, and the rest of the message, we're going to be talking about faith now. And I'm not going to be able to say everything about faith that I would like to say. It probably needs a, a short series or something like that, but I will say it over the times that, that I'm speaking, all right? I'll, I'll, I'll come back to this topic. So I'll say as much as I can in the time that I, that I have here. I believe that what I'm going to talk about next in this whole matter of faith is the next great step that God has for Southland. It's as big as when he spoke to me many years ago, 16 years ago, and said, get them praying. Get the church praying. And then finally, the church, it took years, but the church started praying. Then the Lord said, start teaching them about hearing my voice. And they began to hear his, and you began to hear his voice. And then the next big one was, show them how to be set free from the sins that beset them. The strongholds and the bondages in their life. And I believe now he's saying to us, church, I want to teach you about faith because I want great works. And you can't have great works without God's grace, great grace, and you can't have great grace without accessing it through great faith. And that's what we're going to be talking about. 1982, Fran and I were uh, members in a church in Kitchener-Waterloo, and it was a Sunday night, and the pastor had invited his brother from, I think Alabama it was, to speak that night. He was visiting his brother, so he, he spoke that night. And he said, take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And as soon as he said that, I went, "Uh uh-oh, we got a message on faith coming. And I wasn't disappointed. And the moment he began to speak about faith, something stirred so deeply that I've never forgotten that night. And uh, in fact, it stirred me so deeply, I did not sleep well that night. I got up very early and I had a key to the church because I uh, I was the youth pastor, a volunteer, a youth pastor for that uh, particular church and young adults pastor for that particular church at the time. And I got up early and showered, went to the church with a key. Nobody's there. I unlocked the church, went into the auditorium, locked it up, and it had no windows in it except in the doors, just like this one. And I began to pace up and down the aisles for the next couple of hours. And I began to seek the Lord about this matter of faith. And I said, Lord, I want to learn about these principles about faith. And so the Lord said, I'm going to start teaching you. And just a few weeks later, um, our plant, Relmac Industries, shut down. We were, like, I was going to school. And then, uh, and then late in the afternoon, I would, I, would go to, uh, I would drive to Elmira, and I'd work at Relmac Industries where they built farm equipment. 
And uh, I'd work there till 2 in the morning, come back, and then at 8 o'clock it was time to go back to school, and that's how my life went at that time. And uh, <clears throat> so one night, I came home at 2, 2.30 in the morning, and Fran was awake, and I said, Honey, I, I, I was laid off. The whole plant shut down. And so her question then was, and, and just before that, uh, God had spoken to me, and he said, I want you to double your giving. And I was a student. And so I went to Fran. I'd been pacing in the basement. I'd been walking there and praying. And I went to Fran and I said, I think the Lord is telling us we're supposed to double our giving. And then she said, uh, well, all right, if we're supposed to double our giving, that's fine. And uh, I said, he's just trying to teach us to, to uh, you know, trust him and that kind of stuff. Well, then two weeks later, I lose my job. So she says to me, well, what are we going to do now? We made a commitment two weeks ago that we're going to double our giving. And I said, well, two times zero is still zero. <laughs> Right? So this isn't all bad. And he may have as well have said triple you're giving, you know, because I'm thinking if I'm not getting anything anyway. So, um, so I said, I think he knew about this two weeks ago already. I kind of think he knew ahead that, that I was going to lose the job. So we decided we we're going to trust God with that. And during that time, we had no income coming from government no, for the next few months. We had no savings. We had no income from any kind of job. We had nothing, like zero. There was no way. Our parents didn't have money. And the Lord said, you can't ask anybody. You can't tell anybody about your plight. So we just prayed and waited on him. For the next two months, our giving was exactly the same as it had been before when we doubled it. It was just incredible. And that period of time and the, a whole bunch of events he took us during that time through school set up for starting the church that we started in 1984 in Woodstock, called, uh, now called Faithway. But at the time, I had named it Crossroads Church. And there was nobody there except uh, me and my family and two others, uh, uh, a drunk and, and, and a single woman. And it's true. And uh, we called it Crossroads Church. So that was a great name. And I had prayed for over $1,000. I think it was $1,200 or something like that because I needed leaflets to hand out in the, in the community. And Woodstock had about 30,000 people, and so I calculated, and I needed about 1,200. God gave me 1,200 bucks for that, and I made the leaflets. They were all in cases, and I was, we were getting ready for them to be distributed. We had people that were going to come and distribute it, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me in my prayer time, and he said, you got to change the name of the church. I said, I can't. It's on, the, it's on the leaflets. He said, change the name. I said, Lord, to what? He said, Faithway. I'm going to teach you more principles about faith in this church. And the lessons that I learned in faith in all those years, I'm not saying I learned everything about faith, but I learned many lessons on faith became guiding principles for what hap has happened here at Southland in the next, uh, for the, over the last uh, 16 years. So let's talk a little bit about this faith. The reason so much of the church lives largely as it did before it was liberated is that it hasn't accessed this grace because accessing grace by faith isn't automatic because this faith is the means by which we access empowering grace. And because of that, the devil has attacked the understanding of this word and concept, deceiving many, creating confusion, hurt, and division within the church. The enemy has fought that word. And the concept and the understanding and the teachings, clear teachings of Scripture, and it's created a great cloud of confusion so that most, many, many Christians, a vast majority of them in the West, don't really get it. And that's because he knows how powerful it is, because that's how you access grace, which then gives you supernatural power to do great works, which destroy the works of the enemy and advance the kingdom. You see that? And so you have... People doing wacky things by faith, in the name of faith, and then there's a whole bunch of believers that have some, just some basic common sense and know that that can't be God. They can't explain why, they just know that that wackiness isn't God, and so they're repulsed by it, they're repelled by it, they go over to this side, and now they have nothing to do with faith. So you got the wackos over here, which are not really doing the work of God, and you got these over here who say, I don't believe anymore. And I don't mean they left the church, they're just not, gonna, they're just not going there. And that leaves the church powerless. Do you see it? The enemy's clever, isn't he? 
Now, I want to talk to you about a story. We're going to learn a little bit about faith, and we're going to use a story to draw a few lessons for the remainder of this morning. Jesus had completed a full day of teaching, and the crowds who came to him, uh, were, uh, you know, uh, when the crowds came to him, and when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. You say, Ray, you put that on a PowerPoint? Is that what kind of teaching thing? I want you to remember that phrase. We're coming back to that, all right? Very important what he said there. The disciples, several of whom were skilled fishermen and been on the sea countless times, entered the boat and the voyage began. Jesus, exhausted from a full, you know, a full schedule, a very busy day, fell asleep in the stern of the boat. These seasoned fishermen concluded they were doomed. So frantically, they woke Jesus up, shouting, Teacher, don't you even care that we're going to drown? Then Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and raging waters. The storm subsided. All was calm. And that's the end of a wonderful Bible story. Amen? And now we can all go to sleep. You can see the sun setting over the placid waters and the disciples sailing nicely into the sunset. Amen? That should be the end of the story, but it isn't. Now comes the most important part of it. Then turning to his disciples, he said, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? We say, wait a minute. I thought the story was about Jesus calming the wind and the waves. And that's awesome. No, that wasn't the point of the story. What he said here in his rebuke to the disciples indicates to us that that wasn't the point of the story. He had a re There's a reason behind the story. There's something else behind here. Their display of fear prompted Jesus to rebuke them for a lack of faith. But wouldn't you have been afraid? Wouldn't I have been afraid? There was something that he wanted them to do in the face of the storm, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, okay? So just put that on hold for a second. What did faith have to do with all of this? I mean, they asked him, they went and prayed to him, they said, Jesus, we're going to drown, please help us. That's prayer. That sounds like a good thing. We'll come to that in just a moment. So what did faith have to do with this? How do you get it in the first place? In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, Faith comes from, help me, hearing. In fact, let's read this all together. You're very good readers in this service, the fourth service. The other ones, not so good. Here we go. Don't tell them, because I said the same thing to them. Okay, focus, focus. Here we go. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, okay? Now, that's what it says. If the article the is there, it should be translated the word of Christ, as we see, and would refer to something specific. And for many decades, that's what evangelicals have been teaching. Faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word of God, and they hold up their Bibles. Or they say, when you go to church. So you sit there, you listen to message, and somehow, miraculously, you don't have any way of knowing, but somehow you are being filled with faith. It just happens. As you're reading the Bible, and as you're listening to a message, you're just getting filled by faith. So listen to more messages. And eat a donut while you're doing it, but just listen, and you'll be filled with faith. That's not what it's saying. There is no article there the way it's translated it should not be in your Bibles. It's a poor translation. They all do it. Behind, in, in the Greek, it's in an arthritis construction and should be translated hearing through a word of Christ. Any word of Christ. And uh, anything that God says to us, does he, God only speak to us through his word? Yes or no? No, he can speak to us in many different ways. And speak to, through dreams and visions and all kinds of things. That's what the Word actually says he, he does. And we experience it here at Southland all the time. People are always hearing His voice. Not always through His Word. Though He also speaks through His Word, right? And the Word gives the, this, the Word, the Bible, gives us the parameters for those other kinds of words. So we can recognize what is actually His Word and may be a word from the, de uh, from, the from the enemy or something like that. There is no article, so it should be translated a word of Christ. Not only that, the Greek word for word there is not word. 
is not logos, which is God's universal word to everybody. Everything in here is for everybody. True? But the word behind it is rhema. So word, when you see the word word in the New Testament, it could be logos behind it, the Greek word, or it could be rhema. And in this case, it's rhema. And rhema is God's specific word for a specific person or people in a specific situation at a specific time. The Logos is for everybody for all time. It's universal. Do you, do you see the distinction? Do you see it? Okay. For example, look what Jesus teaches will happen in times of persecution. It'll get clearer as I talk about this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 to 20. He says to his disciples, when, when he's teaching them, and he says, when they arrest you, when you get in trouble, don't worry about what you're going to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. You'll be given the actual words, okay? God will give you the thoughts. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Words from God, Right? That's what happened to Stephen as he suddenly brought before him. He was an apostle, a prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. He wasn't that kind of person. He gets pulled up during persecution, and guess what? God gives him these amazing words, and he simply speaks them out. He was teaching, Jesus was teaching, that they would be given specific words about God's will for a specific situation, a specific time from God himself. Listen to me. Faith always starts with a word from Christ spoken into your specific heart. That is not for the next person. It's for you. Now that changes everything. What this is saying is that if God speaks a word to you, you can take it to the bank. That is his will and it should happen. Amen? Amen? Church? Amen? Alex taught you to say that word. All right? Notice, however, that I didn't say it will happen. I said it should happen. Now, you're going to be saying, you think, wow, I'm surprised that he didn't say it will happen. No, it should happen, and I'll explain. Hearing a word from Christ, whether using Scripture or by other means, opens up the potential for faith to be activated. And that was what Jesus took issue in with his disciples. He'd already given his word that they were going to make it safely to the other side. You say, it doesn't say that anywhere in the passage. No, no, it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you say, I've read, I've read all those three accounts. It does not say that he said you will get safely. You will be completely safe. He didn't give that kind of word. No, you're right. He didn't say that. But Jesus had said, and here's that phrase that I told you I'd be coming back to, let us go over to the other side. That's very important. He hadn't said, hey guys, let's get in the boat, go halfway and then sink. <laughs> True? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. That's what he said. So Jesus' rebuke was because they didn't act on a clear word from God. That's how Jesus had performed all his extraordinary works. Take a look what John 12, 49 says. It says, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. He got his, he got his words, whatever God's will was, what he would say, that's what Jesus would speak. And Jesus also said in John 5, 19, and other passages in, in the Gospel of John, the Son can do nothing by himself because whatever the Father does in heaven, the Son also does. So when Jesus chose to do a miracle or whatever great works he was doing, it was always because he either heard or saw what the Father was doing and then turned around and did it. Does that make sense? So far you're with me, right? So he, expe he expected his disciples to follow his example. They'd been told they were going to the other side. They'd been told that. That means, Jesus said it, that means Jesus knew that the Father wanted him on the other side. Do you know why Jesus wanted him on the other side? Because he wanted him to be ministering there too. There were places where he had lineups of people he had been ministering, 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 and, all once uh, uh, the, and the lineups were still there, and the disciples said, hey, there's more people here to minister, and he'd say, no, we are supposed to be going to other places as well, and he would leave them standing in line, and he'd go to the next place. Whatever the Father said. So he, Jesus says, he gets in the boat, he's tired, lots of work, 
he says, we've got to get to the other side. Why? Because he knows that's where the Father wants him to be. So if the Father wants him to be there, and Jesus says, we're going to the other side, that's like saying, that's my will. That's your word. And now Jesus wanted him to do something about the situation. Listen to me. If you're facing a big obstacle in life, the first thing you need from God is a word from him regarding your situation. You don't pretend to know what his will is in the situation. You find out from him what his will is in that situation. And if he says, get to the other side, then that is his will and his word for you. And then he wants you to act on it. Now, we're not going to be able to talk about everything how he wants you to act on it, but I will talk about one aspect of it in just a sec. Just hang on. If he says to you that you are, to go, you are going to the other side, take that to the bank, he expects you to get to the other side and past your obstacles. Notice I didn't say he will take you there. For far too many years, that's what Pastors have been preaching across the pulpits in our land. Jesus will take you there. Well, if that was true, then Jesus should not have been upset with them when they said, Jesus, please help us. The boat's sinking. We can't get to the other side. Then he would have just said, hey, very good. You did good. Gets up, calms the storms, and they get to the other side. He didn't, take, he didn't want to take them there. He wanted them to take him there. Yes? Yes. That's why he's upset about it. That's why he's upset about it. This is messing with your mind in, about prayer, isn't it? He expects you to get to the other side of your problem or issue, but it all starts with a word. You have to get a word from God, a rhema from him. Many Christians do not hear from God. How sad. How sad. We teach people. We'll, tell, we'll show anybody, anybody, how they can hear God. But so many people, they, they're just careless about it. They don't care. So they and, and here why, here's why it's sad. If you can't get a word from God, you don't actually know where you're supposed to be going and, and what God's will is in a specific situation and how you're supposed to do it. You can't get a word. And if you don't have a word, you can't have faith. If you don't have faith, then you can't access great grace, power then to enact it. And if you can't enact grace, then you can't have great works to remove the obstacle. Because you see, God won't remove all your obstacles for you. He sometimes wants us to remove the obstacles by His grace. That's what made those New Testament believers so different. That's why they looked so different. If you can't hear God, you cannot have that faith. Now, once you have a word, He expects you to respond with faith and do something with that word. Do you know what those disciples were supposed to do in this particular case? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, think about it. Jesus, they're praying. Oh, Jesus, help us. Jesus is not happy with them. Do you know why? He expected them to do something. What do you think he expected them to do? They were to do exactly what Jesus ended up doing. They were supposed to be the ones speaking to the waves and the winds. You say, Ray, now I know you're full of baloney. Yeah, and that's exactly why our churches are the way they are. Why we're so powerless. I'll prove it to you. <laughs> okay? This wasn't the first time Jesus spoke words that changed the circumstances. Do you remember the story? You'll like this one. Remember the story? Uh, they're in Bethany. And uh, they're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is hungry. And so uh, he... he, he uh, he sees a fig tree in the distance, and he wants figs because he's hungry. That's legitimate, right? He goes over to the fig tree, and it's in, it has leaves, but there's no fruit on the fig tree, right? You remember the story. Do you know what's so funny about that particular story? Because what does he do with the fig tree then? He curses the fig tree, right? Remember that story? 
Do you remember that story? Okay. So he curses the fig tree because there's no, no figs growing. But do you know what the scripture says in there? And that, that's the hint for what's going on here. They, the writers never write any, uh, something without having a reason for it. You know what it says? It wasn't in season for figs. That's why there were no figs on that tree. So Jesus was going to a fig tree that he knew should not have any figs on it. He gets there, he's hungry, it has no figs, just like it should, or shouldn't, whatever you would say. It's very confusing. (laughs) And he looks at the thing, and he says, I'm hungry, you have no figs, I know it's not in season, but you should have had figs for me, I curse you. There's something wrong with this picture. Can you imagine, for a minute, here's 12 disciples. They're huddled together. They don't want to ask any questions, but they're having a discussion. They're saying, figs aren't in season. And our master is going to a fig tree, and he's cursing the fig tree for not having figs when it's not in season. Why is he doing that? Jesus says nothing about it, pretends like nothing's happened, turns around, continues walking off to Jerusalem. Can you imagine them walk trailing behind him? Saying, I don't get it. You know what? The rabbis in that day taught through subtle means. That was a, that, it was a clever device they used. They taught, I think, in ways that are better than the way we do it nowadays. But they weren't so direct. They'd be subtle. Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because... It wasn't doing what it shouldn't be doing. He was doing it because he needed an object lesson. He wanted to teach him something. So the next day, he says, well, let's be heading out of Jerusalem. And he picks a, he picks a root. Where does the root go? Right past the fig tree. He knows what that fig tree is going to look like, but he just pretends like he's just walking on. And the disciples are trailing behind, and they spot the fig tree. He goes right by it, and they say, Master, that's the fig tree you cursed. Now it's all withered up. And one day, completely withered up. Nothing there. And they said, Master. And they, they pointed. You know how Jesus responds? He says nothing about the fig tree. And this proves that he was using it simply for an object lesson. That's all. He says, have faith in God. <laughs> They're going, Jesus, we're talking about a fig tree. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, the obstacle in their life, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. There's the lesson. I walked up to this fig tree and I I cursed it and it died. You got obstacles in your life, you need to speak into them and they will be removed. That's what he was teaching them. That's what he was demonstrating to them. This isn't just, and where it says, have faith in God, you'll see me using it in another passage where it'll get even clearer. This isn't just a general saving faith in God. He's talking about obstacles and how you remove them. He's saying, have faith in what God is saying to you. And evidently, because Jesus only did what he heard and saw the Father doing, the Father said, I got a good idea for you. Here's an object lesson, use it. Curse the tree. Show them how to speak to something and get it out of their life. When he reveals something to you, trust him. Have faith in him. And if you deeply believe what he reveals to you, you will act on it. And one of the things he expects you to do with your mountain is to speak out to the situation. Did you know that the Apostle Paul taught the exact same thing? In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, and this is a very famous passage, you all know it, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's what? schemes. Remember we talked about destroying the devil's works? He says, you got to put your armor on because this guy is a formidable enemy. For, your, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is teaching that as you intentionally engage with God in advancing his kingdom, you will face huge resistance from spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Listen to me. If you want to get into the realm of doing great exploits for God, you want to become one of those new, early New Testament kind Christians that advances kingdom, destroys works of the devil, guess what you just signed up for? Trouble. Amen? Christians get so, oh, I got saved and I shouldn't have any more trouble. 
You just signed up for trouble. But God says, now I'll show you how to deal with trouble. Amen? Now, one of the things you do is you put on the armor. But, ha, 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 he tells us to take up, right at the end, in verse 17, he says, take up a weapon. And all of it's defensive. You know, helmet of salvation and breastplate of righteousness and feet shod with preparation of peace and all that's, a, all that's all very good. By the way, does he say, I'll, put, I'll dress you in it? Yes or no? No. He says, get dressed yourself. That's your job to do that. I don't want to be dressing my grown-up kids. Do you? It's gross. <laughs> like, grow up already, right? I don't mind. You know, like one-year-old. That, that's cute. But at 10, you're dressing yourself. Right? And he says, dress yourself. But you know what else he says? Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There it is. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the offensive weapon of Spirit, which is the Word of God. He says, you take it out. I'm not taking it out for you. Do you see that? Do you see that, church? So what is this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? There it is again. It's an anarthrous grammatical construction, which should be translated, which is a Word of God. Not only that, the word behind word is Rhema, not Logos, which is, Logos is the universal kind of, you know, for everybody. So, in other words, he's not saying, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible. That's not what he's saying. He's saying a specific word that you have listened for, that God has instructed you for your specific situation. You get that from God, and now you take that out of the scabbard, and you wield that thing. How do you wield it? You wield it by speaking it out. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. But churches are dead because they don't, do, they don't know their heritage. They don't know their birthright. And so Christians aren't experiencing often these kinds of things. Oh boy. But we're learning, aren't we, church? Amen, church? We're learning, yes. We're growing in a lot of these things. So Jesus spoke a word, and the mountain or storm was thrown into the sea, and they arrived safely at shore, and that's what Jesus expected his disciples to do. Interestingly, some years later, the Apostle Paul also was on a ship on his way to Rome this time to see Caesar, and uh, uh, a gale wind storm, you know, hurricane force winds, it says, actually, um, was battering the ship and was running them and threatened to ground the ship and batter the whole thing and break it up to pieces. And they were all they, they, they were afraid they were going to die. Fourteen days the storm lasted. Fourteen days. That's a long time. They threw all the tackle overboard. They threw the fo- food overboard and finally hadn't eaten for many days. And then you know what it says? An angel appeared to Paul, gave him a word. A word. There it is again. Raymond for his specific situation. Not a universal word for everyone ever caught in a storm on the Mediterranean. So just because you're going on a Mediterranean cruise, you can't claim this verse and say, ah, see, this is how I... No. It was a specific word for that situation. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who will sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless... We must run aground on some island. And then in verse 44, it says that though the ship broke apart, everyone survived just like the word God had given Paul and which he then spoke out. I remember years ago, uh, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but for those of you that are new here, I'll just give it a, a, small, a small version because it'll help you understand what I'm saying and that how you put that into practice. And uh, we were living in Kitchen Waterloo, and God said, I want, you to go to, uh, uh, I want you to go to Woodstock and plant that church over there that I talked about before. And so uh, I just come uh, to the close of my studies there, and, and uh, we needed a place in, in Woodstock, but the, the vacancy rate was zero. We had an, a real estate agent that was trying to help us find a place, and we couldn't find a place for a family of six. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, the Lord spoke to us and as we were praying about it. And uh, one day I came home and Fran had been praying about it. I had been praying about it. We said, Lord, like, should we give notice? Like, the, the, 
vacancy rate is zero. Like, we have no place to go. If we move in a month and there's no place, what do we do? And uh, the Lord spoke to Fran out of a passage out of Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 17 to 18. Now, that's not what this passage means. But it, what's in here is the logos. Logos. But God took that and the words of that and turned it into a rhema for our particular situation. And this is what it said. Gather up thy wares out of the land. It was in the King James we were reading in those days. O inhabitants of the fortress, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I will sling out the inhabitants of the land at this once. So I came home and Fran said, the Lord really spoke to me in my devotional time this morning. And I believe that he does want us to give notice and and go ahead and move by faith because he's going he's gonna to throw somebody out of their house. And we said, great, somebody's going to end up on the street because of us. <laughs> we get in a house and somebody else ends up on the street. So uh, with, uh, I gave notice. In the meantime, we couldn't get anything. Couldn't get anything, couldn't get anything. We had one week left. And we were moving. All the boxes were packed. They were in the garage. Four little kids. Uh, no money. Nothing. And a church uh, with, you know, about 12 people by then or something like that, maybe 15. And, uh, and nobody supporting us or anything. In fact, the pastor of the church where we were members and his associate, they came to visit us and they, they said, Ray, could we, see you in, could we see you in your garage? Which meant what we're going to say to you, we don't want your wife and kids to hear. <laughs> and they took me in the garage and I said, yeah, yeah, what's, what's up? And they said, Dirk, are you really sure you should be doing this? I said, I'm absolutely convinced God has spoken. He's given us a word. You're absolutely certain about this? Because this looks pretty foolish. I said, I know it does. But I said, God has spoken to us clearly in our hearts. We've heard his voice for years already. We know this is what he's saying. All right. And they left. And so here we are. Anyway, with a week to go and still no place, uh, it was Sunday morning. And um, July 1st was the following Saturday, and then on Sunday I was going to, uh, July 2nd. So this is a week before. And I'm walking the streets of Kitchener early in the morning. Everybody's asleep. The birds are out. And I'm praying about my message. And guess what I was praying, uh, preaching on? Faith out of Hebrews 11. And uh, the Lord s- spoke to me, and he said, Now, when you get over there, I want you to use an illustration. I want you to use yourself as an illustration, and I want you to share with him the passage that I spoke to you through and gave you a Ramon, and I want you to tell your little congregation, your little flock, tell them that, I'm going, that you're moving in the following week, and that I'm going to move somebody out and give you that place. I said, uh, God, that's a great idea, but could we do it the following week after we've moved in? Then tell them. He said, no. You tell them before you move in. I said, God, I'm really not into telling him beforehand. I'd rather tell him after. He said, no, you tell him beforehand. I said, yes, Lord. I went to church and I got up and I said, I'm preaching on faith this morning. It's going to be the longest message I've ever preached. And next week, we're moving into Woodstock, though we have no place. And God is going to remove somebody out of their house so that we can move in. And their eyes just opened up. They're thinking, is it me that's getting thrown out? You know? <laughs> so then we prayed and, and what have you. And it was a, a remarkable, I mean, uh, uh, the, the story of what happened on Saturday was just stunning. But that would take me another 30 minutes. So I won't. I, I'll just fast forward now. The following week, we moved in with the moving van. No money, no support, no salary, nothing. And we moved in the moving van. And for two days, we stayed in a hotel and we ate day-old donuts that I always picked up at Robin's, and then we'd ask ourselves out for lunch and supper. And that took care of that. And on Monday, a guy who was attending our church came to me, and he said, somebody moved out of that house there, and we weren't expecting him to move. So I'll call the landlord. So he called the landlord who was leaving on a canoe trip, and the landlord said, this is the weirdest thing, but we don't understand. This woman has lived here for five years. She's getting married in a month. She just has to stay one more month. And then she can move in with her husband, but she's decided to move out with a friend. And then a month later, then she'll move in with her husband. And he said, we were not expecting her to leave now for another month. So now I have no renters. Yes, you can move in. And so we met the woman and she explained and, and uh, she said, I just had this idea last week. 
that um, we, I should just move in with my friend, which makes no sense. And she wasn't blonde either. <laughs> Out. So anyway, anyway, um, and then as I'm standing there, suddenly I'm stunned. The Holy Spirit just took that verse out of Jeremiah 10 and it just came driving into my spirit and he said, gather up, the, up your wares for I will fling the inhabitants out of the land. And I nearly had a meltdown right there. I couldn't believe what God had done. Exactly what he had said. But he said, you speak it out. You tell, you tell it. And, uh, and, and it's very, very important. So I spoke it out, in the, and the following week, that's what happened. Now, I want to demystify the prophetic just a little. Did you know that this is essentially what prophecy in the prophetic is? It's receiving a word from God like we're all supposed to get, and then for our situations. But in the prophecy, what you're doing is speaking it out to and for another. That's it. And then it happens. <clears throat> I had a, <clears throat> had a woman... Uh, uh, as you know, I have a prayer partner, and, and I, you may get to meet her in the months to come yet. She lives in Malaysia, and I've told the story of how she became my prayer partner when I was in South Korea, and, and she's been praying for us a long time. She's no better than ours. We've got great prayer partners here and prophetic people that are very advanced, but I'm just telling a particular story for an illustration's sake. And she, uh, she emailed me the one day and she said, I hear you're going to Toronto. I really think you should meet Grace Chin, who's related to one of our prayer partners in Malaysia. And she's a graduate of the University of Manitoba, but living in Toronto. And she said, I really think the Lord's telling me you're supposed to meet with her. And I didn't want to meet with this. this I don't know her. So Fran and I finally said, you know what? Let's just get Christina Chung from Malaysia off our back. Let's just, just get it off her back. Then we can say we met this person. So... I said to Fran, I'm giving her five minutes in the lobby. That's it. And then after that, we're going to have fun. We were there for a conference. And this was our free time. We just had a little bit of free time. Now we're supposed to meet with somebody. Ah! So we set up the meeting, and she comes in, a diminutive uh, Asian from Malaysia. And she, I said, five minutes to Fran. And then I'm going to give you the eyes, and then it's kind of like we have to go. <laughs> you know, kick under the table. She was there for two minutes in the lobby, and I knew that God wanted us to meet with her. I knew it, and Fran knew it. We looked at each other, and we shook our heads like this. And I said, would you like to come up to our room? I invited her up to our room, and the minute we got there, I'd never had anything like this happen. She starts prophesying over us. I'm like, Ooh, what's this? But it was so, uh, something was happening. I pulled up paper and I started writing as fast as I could. I was sitting there and finally, she's standing there and she's looking at me and she said, write faster. <laughs> I'm writing. And I kept that and I mean a lot of our prayer partners and, and stuff, they do this, this kind of stuff all the time. But anyway, uh, I just pulled out a couple of things. I looked at it yesterday and here's a couple of things she said on May 13th, 2004. This was Grace Chin. You'll be traveling much and speaking in different countries. I never, I never was asked, ever, ever, not one time, never did another church in Canada or anywhere ever ask me to speak anywhere at that time. And I was not traveling to other countries and stuff unless I was going to learn something from them or this kind of stuff. And so when I, when I heard that, I wrote it down and I said, yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> and, and now, of course, you know the work that we have in Uganda and Jerry Reimer keeps trying to drag us to Paraguay and in the ministry there. And, and in Kelowna, we're constantly going with pastors of some of the largest churches in Canada. We're meeting with them now. And they're asking us to come uh, frequently. Here's the second one that she had. You will be training many leaders. <laughs> I wasn't training, training any leaders except the ones that I had here. And as you know, a few months ago, Alex from Uganda was here and he told you, he announced to the whole church, he wants me to train 23,000 pastors over there. That's stunning, isn't it? And she, I was writing this stuff and I went, yeah, whatever. 
That's how it works. When you get a word from God, you speak it, and it becomes a creative word. It creates that very situation because when God spoke, the heavens and earth were created. When Elijah declared and spoke, he said, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't rain for three and a half years. And look what James says about Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man just like us just like us. What's James' point? We can do the same things. Not on our own, but when God gives us a word and speaks to us, then we do it. What mountain in your life does God want you to cast into the sea by a word he has given you so that you get to the other side? Four quick rules for faith, and then we're done. The exercise of faith isn't a formula. Some think that formula is like saying, in Jesus' name, we'll do it. And they take it from passages like this where it says, Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So people go around in the name of Jesus and then they do whatever they want. It's not a formula. My little four, when my grandson, when he was four years old, we'd be laying hands and praying on family members. He'd squirt in there. <laughs> he'd be playing. He'd squirt through there and then he'd lay hands and he'd go, in Jesus' name. <laughs> and then we'd burst out laughing, you know. <laughs> he's four years older, he's doing that. He's just like Stephanie. Eh? But anyway, uh, Peter and John were not using a formula. That phrase means in the name of Jesus or according to his will. In for example, in addition to being our director of finance and operations, Eunice McAllister is also my personal assistant. And it says that right on the, on the tape recording, like, uh, you know, on the, on the voicemail, if, uh, if she's not answering. Uh, and she will, sometimes she's writing letters for me, and sometimes when she writes them, she'll come and say, what do you basically want to say here? And then she goes and writes it. Or she knows already, she's worked for me for 11 years, she knows already, she just writes it, and then she goes, Eunice McAllister, on behalf of Ray Dirksen. You know what she's saying? In Ray's name, or in Ray Dirksen's name. That's all it means. She knows what I want, she writes what I want. So Peter and James didn't just go around and saying, oh, let's see, in Jesus' name. Rise up and, be, and walk, like some of these people are doing. And it's a big grand show. They knew what Jesus wanted for that particular situation because they got a word from him, and that's why they said that. In his name, not our name. Ex uh, number two, the exercise of faith isn't about claiming a Bible verse. People get mad because they claimed and prayed, but it didn't happen. They'll claim a verse like, Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. But they ignore an important qualification before this promise. It says, if you remain in me and my, what? Words remain in you. What, what are the words? Guess what word is behind that. What Greek word? Do you think it's logos or rhema? Yep, you got it right. It's rhema. If you pray those words that he gives you, his will, then you get whatever you're praying for. Number three, the exercise of faith isn't simply speaking positive words. There was a man that I met some years ago. I said to him, he's a Christian brother, and I said, hey, how are things going? He said, great, great. And then he said, and if they weren't, I wouldn't tell you. I said, oh, why, why wouldn't you tell me? I was curious. I, I, really, I had never heard anybody say that. He said, because if whatever I would say, that's what's going to happen. In other words, if I don't have a positive confession, then negative things will happen in my life. I said, well, my dear brother, the scripture says that we're supposed to share one another's burdens. Does it not say that? He said, yes. I said, well, if I can't know what your burden is, then how can I carry it? And then he was upset with me. See, he thought it was about his words. It isn't about speaking our words. It's about speaking his words. Isaiah 55 so says, So is my word, God's word, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God never said our word would not return empty. His word will not return empty. Amen? Balaam had a pet donkey. Do you remember that? Balaam's donkey, right? And that donkey could... Speak. Well, it spoke one time. Whose words were those? The donkeys or God's? Huh? They were God's words. They weren't the donkey's words. And God can use any donkey. 
and he put, put his words in any donkey today. Amen? Amen. Say amen. 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 That's right. And finally, the exercise of faith isn't forgetting what you want. It's about getting what God wants you, through you. James 4 says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's not exercise. Faith isn't about getting what you want. It's about getting what he wants. Amen? And that's why you need a word from him. God is looking for a generation who will love him passionately and desire his will, who will seek to hear his voice, who will then believe deeply what he tells them, and who will then enact what he tells them, thereby living extraordinarily and doing incredibly great exploits on his behalf. And in doing so, many, many will be swept into the kingdom. Church, this is your calling. This is your birthright. This is your heritage. You were made for this. You were made for him. Serve him with great faith and know his pleasure now and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you.